Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design, the state of the ecosystem, and other stuff that we think about. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Hello, Desmond. Hello, Chris. What stuff do you like to think about? Um, when? In general? Yeah. I saw a great tweet today from an account that I follow. Let me pull this up real quick. It's from a Twitter account called Existential Comics. And it says, things that are terrifying. Number one, the untamed power of the sea. Number two, the fact that we alone bear responsibilities for our choices. Number three, the thought that the universe is ultimately meaningless. And number four, snakes and stuff. (laughs) I like that a lot. (laughs) Very deep. Good, Good content. So that's what I think about. Nice. Snakes and stuff. I don't think about snakes that often. I mean, if I fell into a pit of snakes, that would that would not be fun. But that's not something I think about very often. <laughs> I'm paralyzed by the thought of falling in a pit of snakes. Hmm. I find it very difficult to even just exist. It seems like one of those old-timey things. Like, do you remember when you were younger and getting stuck in quicksand seemed like a persistent threat to your well-being? No, because there was very little quicksand in the UK. Well, there's very little quicksand in America, or at least <laughs> in the East Coast where I grew up. That's true. So Yeah, I just never really thought about it, I guess. But, um, yeah, interesting. Very interesting. What else uh, is interesting? What else is interesting? Um, not much on my side. I... Um, I'm going to be writing a new Elixir service pretty soon. Uh, so that's cool. So I'm, I'm, I'm just catching back up on some things that have been going on. Um, we've been fully doing Sage, the library that I talked about a few episodes ago. Um, Do you want to refresh us on what that was? Yeah, so Sage is um, basically a way to write sagas within uh, Elixir. So Sagas? I- Sagas, yes. So sagas are long-running tasks that run in the background. Um, so Sage is a really good way to deal with things like distributed transactions. Uh, it really helps you with like errors, um, things like that. So we use it for a lot of our payment processing code, where you have to say like, update this user, update the subscription, up, and then call out to Stripe, and then do some other things. You know, so you have basically these big long distributed transactions. Um, so we've been getting a ton of mileage out of Sage, um, and I just want to pl- uh, plug a blog post that we've written as well that I'll link to in the show notes all about Sage um, and how we used it to refactor some of that code as well. So uh, yeah, well worth a read if you're dealing with similar kind of problems. Cool. So it sounds like it's gone pretty well. Have there been any pain points? Um, some of the return values are kind of interesting. Uh, and honestly, like one of our problems has been like figuring out how we put it in our code base in like mm-hmm. a nice, clean way. Um, and but honestly, most of these are like our kind of internal problems and figuring out uh, patterns for how we do it. Um, less problems with the library; it it just worked out of the box, and I don't think we've had that many problems with it. Um, now the Stripe library that we use, on the other hand, that has been a whole. <laughs> Whole can of worms, you know. Um, a can of snakes. A can of snakes, indeed. <laughs> a can of snakes. Um, but yeah, so I think that um, hopefully one day we will have a better Stripe library. If anyone out there, actually, to be fair, like if you're out there and you maintain that library, thank you for doing it in the first place. It's just Stripe changed their API a bit, so it's been a bit of a moving target. Um, and of course, the things that we need are on the new version that aren't yet in the library. So, of course, it's been uh, slightly problematic as a result. But yeah, there you go. What about you? What's been going down in Desmond Town? It's going down a lot of management stuff. Yeah. <laughs> are yeah. we going to pivot this podcast into a management podcast? Is that should our listeners be warned? I don't know. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He was He's an Elixir developer who was in town. And he remarked that he always learns something from our podcast, which uh, made me feel pretty good. I don't know how much he would learn about, like, 
from a management podcast. Maybe we could do a separate one. I, I was thinking it would be a separate one. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe. Like, managing is, is weird, you know. It's tough. I mean, I th- I think it's fun. I like working with the people on my team and thinking about, like, the direction we want to go in. And it's nice because I still write – I wouldn't say I write a lot of code, but I review a lot of pull requests. And sometimes I'll pull off a small feature and hack on that. I'm also still pretty close to it. Like, I've only been in this job for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you get a bit further away. But, like, something that I enjoy now is kind of – the things that I bring up on here are often my team's successes, but because I'm still quite fairly close to the code, I can still talk about it. And I think like, you know, you don't have to be so hands-on to still play an important role as well. And also like good leadership really matters. Um, I'm sure there'll be people out there who disagree with that, but I, I, I truly believe that a great leader makes a team better. Um, and I aspire to do that. I can't imagine who would disagree with that. I mean, we have all like, most of us leave our jobs because of a bad boss. Mm-hmm. That's my greatest fear. You talked about snakes. Mine's people leaving because I'm a terrible boss. So. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> the villain takes the hero and he's like, I'm going to throw you in this pit of bad bosses. And he's like, no. <laughs> it's just a hundred people like staring over his shoulder being like, yeah. no, you should do it this way. Yeah. Like you have to move this ticket to in development. Oh, yeah. <laughs> people don't like it when you do that, huh? Well, but you have to, how else are you going to know what people are working on? Yeah, it's true. It's of true. Course. Of course, I sound like a manager. I will say that we've been arguing with uh, Kubernetes all week. Mm. I do not care for Kubernetes, man. No? Not my scene. It, I, I understand there's a lot of complexity with it, right? There is. And uh, full disclosure, I don't know that much about it. Um, but we have a sort of complicated ops setup that makes it very difficult to do things like set environment variables or spin up new environments. And part of that is our, our tooling, our current tooling is not that great. If any DevOps engineers who are listening to this podcast want a job working on a high traffic Elixir site in Los Angeles, please let me know. But really, like I think Kubernetes overlaps a lot with things that Elixir gives you in terms of fault tolerance and clustering and other stuff that I will think of later. Yeah. I um yeah I I mean we we kind of had that great chat with um, Bitwalker about some of this right Paul Schoenfelder yes yeah we should link to that show in the show notes just recursive show listings mm-hmm. um but I I have yet to try Kubernetes I'm interested in it because uh it it so I think something that's good is it feels like some of the com- some DevOpsy folks have basically converged on it as a solution and i quite like that but maybe that's not a good thing but i mean why do you like it like why is it a solution for everything (laughs) i I honestly have no opinions because i haven't used it Uh, you know like one of those things where someone's like oh yeah i heard it's good i I just heard kubernetes is good so i I think we should all use it Uh, don't believe the hype man no i understand that but i i want to try it because um I don't know. I think it seems like it solves a lot of these problems, but maybe it doesn't. What problems? Um, the problems of dealing with uh, Dockerized services and doing scheduling and then describing different services, doing service discovery. It deals with secrets management for you. It, do- it does quite a lot of stuff. It deals with secrets management very painfully, as we're discovering. Ah, uh, well... <laughs> That's a uh, that's a thing that I didn't know about, but now I do. So thank you, Desmond. Well, Kubernetes is obviously a thing, and it's a total thing. It's outside of my purview, but we're having a lot of pain with it right now, and it's kind of grinding my gears. Mm. So yeah, so that's what I've been up to. We've been managing that as best we can. So we'll see how long we last on it. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well. I wanted to switch gears and talk about um, Ecto today. What's Ecto? What is Ecto, you might ask? Um, So Ecto is Elixir's kind of ORM library, but I don't want to say ORM because it's not really. It doesn't have a direct relationship with something like Active Record, although it does make interacting with data in your database a lot nicer. Ecto uses the the data mapper pattern um, in order to 
basically you have these three different concepts. So you have um, you have your repository, which is basically your access layer to your database. Then you also have your change sets, which represent a set of changes on the last part, which is a struct. And your struct is basically the thing that maps your table back to something in the Elixir space. So in this case, a struct, and that's known as a schema. Yeah, did you mean schema when you I first did. said struct? I did, yeah. I just totally messed that up. So Ecto has schemas that map Elixir structs to database tables. Exactly. And then change sets, which allow you to have a set of changes on top of that schema that you then commit back to your database through the repository. So in effect, all of your queries and all of your changes go through the repository. So you always pass them into the repository. And the repository is a thing that basically sets up your connection and has all of that. Yeah, I think one of the things that people... Oh, it also... Ecto also has a query language uh, that lets you compose SQL queries. Yeah, that is a good point. So um, to read the official line of what Ecto does, because I've done such a a, a horrible job (laughs) of explaining it, Ecto is a domain-specific language for writing queries and interacting with databases in Elixir. So... I haven't used anything else other than Ecto to deal with database kind of stuff in Elixir. Uh, So full disclosure, there might be other solutions out there. I actually don't know of any other solutions that I've looked into, but Ecto feels like the de facto solution that the community is kind of settled on. And in my opinion, I think it does a fantastic job of uh, providing that mapper between your database back to your kind of Elixir world code. What's interesting about Ecto is it's, composable like ecto does these different things but it's really all those constituent pieces that you use independently you define your schemas you don't have to use those with queries or uh, repos we'll talk a little more about that later and you create a query that then you pass to your repo which is the biggest difference if you're coming from um, say active record is understanding okay well i've made this thing like why do i well, how do, what does it mean to give it to a repo? Like understanding that relationship is, is tricky for newcomers. And then also the concept of a repository is very fluid. It's generally a database. It could be a CSV file. It's very easy to write the interface for a repo so that you can add data or query data from any data source that you would define as a repo. Yeah, so I, I think something that's really cool there is having these separate repos means that you can be talking to many different sources as well, right? Um, I don't know if anyone out there has worked in the active record world where um, if you're trying to configure multiple databases, it can be a bit of a pain and there's different gems. Yeah, but in this world, you have this nice logical separation of saying, say you have database one and then you have your like legacy DB. Um, They're separated at the repository level with different configuration. And that actually makes it really easy to have all of these kind of different accesses into different kind of uh, sinks of data. That's one of my favorite things about it. And we have three databases that we talk to in our application. And you end up writing several queries that you keep around that are uh, basically SQL snippets. And we'll talk more about that. But then you can talk to any database at the same time at any time you want to. And it's very clear where you're querying data from, how you're accessing it, what the columns that you're querying against are. Yeah, and uh, sorry, something that we neglected earlier is those schemas that you can define in Ecto, you can also define relationships as well. So, of course, in a relational database, you obviously want to define that you have foreign keys and that those foreign keys also, you know, uh, you have relationships in that data. So you can say a post has one author, an author has many posts, those kinds of things as well. So Ecto gives you that nice DSL to describe all of those fields that you might have in the table, and then as well as uh, all of those kind of relationships that you have there as well. So let's structure this conversation a little bit around some of these different parts of Ecto, because Ecto is super interesting, and it gets really useful when you start to use these different pieces in isolation. So we started talking about the repos, and I think the main interesting thing The two main interesting things about it are, one, that anything can be a repo. As I said, you could have a CSV be a repo. You could probably have an FTP source be a repo. I mean, if you you wanted to treat it that way. And that you can have many repos in your application. And each of them is started up as its own supervision tree with its own connection pool. And it's very easy to manage those 
independently, and they're all accessible from anywhere in your application. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I uh, the repo configuration is often often pretty simple. I think out of the box, I, I'm, I'm sure most people out there are going to install Postgres, right? And Ecto has a really fantastic Postgres wrapper called Postgrex um, that's used under the hood um, that deals with all of that connection pooling and then um, does all the wire uh, protocol kind of stuff for Postgres as well. Yeah, that works super well. Anything else that we can say about repos? Um, no, uh, I think they're pretty straightforward to set up, definitely. If you are a beginner listening to this and you're confused by what a repo is, think about it as a data store. Definitely. A data store that you send queries to. Mm -hmm. And then you might have, uh, so you have a few different functions on there as well on that repo. Um, so you'd end up having an all function, a one, um, you have update, you have an insert as well. So you have these different functions that you pass things into. And most of the time that's a query. Yeah. So yeah, what do we pass to repos? Let's shift to the next thing. Yeah, uh, so I think, again, something that's really cool in Ecto is, is this notion of composable queries. So Ecto gives you a DSL for defining, well, in, in the case of most people are going to be talking about SQL queries, right? But Desmond kind of alluded to the idea that you could have anything as a sink of data or like a repository of data in Ecto as well. But uh, Ecto gives you this way to kind of write SQL in a in these nice functions that get you can pipe to each other to write composable queries. So you can have a where as a function um, that you can pipe to something like an order by, and then you can pipe to a limit, and then you would pipe that to your repo. And that would compose that whole query and then pipe all of that into the repo and then execute that query at the repo. So a query is an ectostruct for yes. those curious. So when you create one of these queries, it returns you a query object that you can pass to another query and end up chaining chaining things along. So maybe in one section of your app, you have a where clause that uh, queries somewhere. And then later on, you want to add another where condition to it. You can just pipe that into a separate function that has maybe some semantic meaning or something else that you want to reuse. And Ecto is smart enough to, by default, it does and... Um, if you chain your wares in that way, if you want an or, you could also say where foo is bar or this is that. Um, you can also just drop into straight SQL by using fragments if you need that much control. But it's nice being able to build up these queries with smaller composable functions that you can then reuse. For example, if you always want the latest object, we have this at work, you have a function that you pass a query into and automatically adds an order by updated at and a limit one. And you can change what you're ordering by if you want to order by first name or something or inserted at. Instead of updated at, you can pass that in as an option. But it's nice that anywhere in our application, you just pipe your query to most recent and it adds those conditions to it. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Um, so I think a pattern that we use all over the place uh, is is those kind of small composable functions that Desmond's talking about there, um, where you basically always end up with something that's like the first argument of that function will be a query that you then use to chain to build up more of a query as well. So something that you can always do is yeah, Ecto basically gives you these two different ways to define to define queries. Desmond, I don't know what your preference is, but I usually use the kind of from approach and then mm -hmm. use keyword arguments to define the the other parts of the query. So like the where would be a um, a keyword list, sorry, to define the, the where part. And then you wrap all of that in like a from function that says from something in query, and then you give it the keyword uh, list at the end there that would be all your where statements or something like that. Yeah, I always use that syntax because I, I find it easier to work with when I'm doing more complex things and for chaining, it does look a little weird. It took me a while to get used to it because like you sort of forget what's a linkser syntax and yeah. it's like sort of SQL syntax. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird how close it ends up being actually. Right. Yeah. From is implemented as a macro. Mm -hmm. So that's how we write this like pseudo SQL that ends up working. That's not quite elixir syntax. <laughs> and then the A in query bit is weird because I guess mm -hmm. in is like a list keyword. 
I don't, yeah, I, I've never actually grokked that part. Honestly, me neither. Yeah, it's like you kind of, it's like one of those DSLs that you just get used to doing it and then you forget about why you do it that way and it just becomes like muscle memory, basically. But something that's so nice here is that you end up writing all these like one line functions that basically take in a query and maybe some params if you're using those in your wares and then basically return a query out of it. So then you end up with these like, you can basically compose queries with a pipe operator by saying like, um, let's say you have a, I don't know, a query module called like a person query. And on that query module or, you know, just a generic Elixir module, you have a bunch of functions in there that do different things like where the name is something. So then you can say like person query module dot name uh, something and then pipe that to another function that will say like where the age is something else. Um, and then you build up your query just by like piping the thing into various functions. And it's, it's really elegant when you get to see it. Aha, that's an interesting case because you can pass you can pass those where conditions in as a keyword list argument. So we just have like a where function that takes a keyword list and you can put as many conditions in like name is whatever, email is something else. And then in your from, you pass that list, those conditions into like the ecto from where uh this is sort of hard to explain in a podcast but <laughs> if you google for passing a keyword list into ecto where it'll probably find this where you just give it that uh you pin it in the macro and then it's it's very easy then you avoid these whole like find by name find by email and you get just a very simple find by right and then you just pass a big like keyword list of all the things mm-hmm. and you can do that as many times as you want to chain up your where conditions so I, I, um, there's, there's a blog post that we'll link to in the show notes, um, that is all about query composition that I used like a long time ago, uh, from Drew Olson. That's all about doing this and building up different kinds of queries. So we can link to that and you'll actually get some concrete examples rather than listen to us kind of trying to describe code on the radio, which isn't that useful most yeah. of the time. It's like the thing that does the other thing, and then you pass it to this third thing. But I, I understand why you're like, why you would pass that where. I, I feel like I, I quite like all these named functions because then you end up, it like becomes very clear what's happening. Although mm-hmm. I guess like your where example also is fairly clear given that you do it at the call site and then you just pass in a list. Yeah, you, you can see it at the call site, which is very nice. Yeah. And in, in this example that I'm describing, you basically end up saying like this query, chain to this query, chain to this thing, chain to this thing, and then pass all of that to like, your repo dot one or your repo dot all, depending if you want one record or many records, and then it it just works and it's very elegant. Hey, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How do you handle preloads and joins in a query? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Yeah, I. So this is <laughs> okay. Let Let's describe the problem for everyone. So if you're used to the active record way of doing things, where you can just say, let's say you grab a post and then you want to grab the author. And that post uh, defines a relation that uh, belongs to author. Now, in the Railsy way, you would have a function—sorry, uh, a method on that on that post that gets returned, where you could just say post dot author. And what that would do is magic under the hood cause a SQL query to happen if it wasn't already loaded, and basically bring you back an author object, which might be a user or something like that, depending on how you've mapped it. So. Because Elixir is immutable, you don't have the same kind of things that you get there, right? So you can't just immediately say, if I retrieve a post back, that I could just grab an author like that and just return it. Although they could have provided the ability to do that and assign it to a different return value or something. I believe one of Elixir's goals is about explicitness, and I think that runs down into Ecto as well. So something that they chose to do early on is make preloads kind of an explicit option. So if you wanted to grab that author of the post, you would have to explicitly tell it to preload that author before or after the query is executed, but you have to pass that in. So Desmond, I guess to answer your question in a long-winded way, uh, something that we do is we will always preload pretty much like 99% of the time after the thing has been grabbed. And then we'll pass that into another preload function where we you can deeply describe your relationships in the preload as, again, as a keyword list. And that will say, so you could say into that, into that post example, you would 
pass post into repo.preload and then tell it in the keyword list with an atom to preload author. And then what you would get back is a post with an with the the key author now resolved either to an author object or sorry an author schema or a nil value if it didn't exist but doing it that way that causes a second query to happen because first you get the post then you have to go back and get the author that man is correct so isn't that a bummer well it depends it depends what you're trying to do like we use joins a lot to to if we don't need to actually have the the data or sometimes we'll preload so so it ends up being a single query but Honestly, like, uh, it, it really depends on what, what way you want to optimize. I like having one query. Um, so you do a single query that would say, like, grab the post and grab the author of the post at the same time. Yeah, so find the post, interjoin the author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, honestly, like, Ecto has a fantastic um, DSL for describing joins as well. I think it works really, really well. It's, it's weird, though, because you have to say, join the author and preload the author. Yeah. Like, you have these two steps to it. Right. And, I mean, I, I find it a little cumbersome to describe when to do that, because it'd be one thing if my calling function could just say, okay, find this post and pass in these, I pass in the preloads as a keyword list. But that's not good enough. I also have to pass in the joins. Mm-hmm. So I end up having these sort of helper functions that's like, include author, include tags include whatever and then you can you pipe it into that and it will do everything for you do the join and the preload yeah yeah Yeah. and those will do those will handle both and so that i can compose my joins and preloads that way right right i I mean um so there's a use case what i'm describing as well if you have custom preloads where let's say your api you need to specify what to include um do we we have to have that a bunch where you say like on the like on the rest one point oh i want to include the post and i want to include the author and any comments right um and then that's an opt-in thing on the api side so you can pass an include thing and then we pass that down into preloads and then figure out what to preload um we do stuff like that as well so let me ask you a question which is where do you put your queries (laughs) that's a great question because we've recently been reorganizing some of this. What we do is we have an RPC layer for our app that functions as sort of a main controller that does authorization, validation, and serialization. And for the business logic, it passes it off to our business logic layer, which returns queries. So if I want to get the available challenges for a player that returns a query object and it's up to this rpc layer the controller to pass that to the repo and handle it and the individual functions in the business logic layer are responsible for getting all of the preloads that they need or sorry the, for composing the queries that they need that was your question those queries will live either as a submodule in that same file or in a different a totally separate file that's like a query module and we have a like query general query macro so we can say use vs.query and that pulls in these common things like this finder that i mentioned the most recent stuff and it imports some ecto query functions for so you can define um, other things yeah and we do that for two reasons one it's nice to have like in our business logic to say query dot most recent query dot find by whatever query dot challenges for player whatever like include all of the joins that i care about and the other reason is that our the way our pagination works is that that exists at the rpc layer like we know there if we have a page um, the page size and so forth and that's where we need to know if we're doing pagination like we can't it's very clumsy to pass that down to the business logic so we have to push everything up in other words return queries to that controller as opposed to returning the actual result set so i guess what we do in our case is keep all of the queries alongside the schemas you put your queries in your schemas yeah Ooh. we put the query functions in the schemas so first of all i want to caveat this in that i don't think the schema should do anything other than things that are related to mapping it to the db right so for us, we felt like the queries kind of belonged there logically because I don't know, it seemed like a logical place to put it. 
And it kind of goes alongside that idea of like things related to the DB and querying is obviously about building up SQL and refetching or retrieving things. So it gave us a nice place to put it. I don't necessarily know if it's the right approach there, but it was a kind of a logical grouping of ideas. Um, but what we do try and do is not put anything else in the schema. So the schema will literally just be, oh, actually, that's not true. We put the change set functions in there as well, but we can get into that in a bit. So we just put the query functions in there and then all the change set functions as well. And then obviously the schema describes the actual schema as well. But so in your earlier example of I have a post and I want the author, is that a query on the post schema or in the author schema it'll be on the post most of the time i guess it depends what the like the thing that you're trying to re- the primary thing that you're trying to retrieve is and it, it lives with that yeah so something else that we often do is define things like preload functions on the schemas themselves that accept a, a list of preloads or give a default list of preloads as well and that allows us to kind of do those preloads uh in line on that is it cool? No, I've, I've been okay with all of this. Like, I haven't run into too many problems. And I, I think like our largest files, our largest schemas are only still like a few, like three or four hundred lines. So they're not that big. I think if they start getting massive, I think the obvious answer there would be to like separate them out into um, separate them out into separate query modules if we wanted to do that like what you you kind of described there or maybe even put them in line with the services that was another thing that i was playing around with very early on we decided to move away from that so that's what we do so like why do we do things differently that's a good question i think that's all about the fact that ecto doesn't impose too many like ideas on you right you can because these things are just functions you can put them wherever you want and therefore lies dragons i guess in some ways but also allows you to have a nice bit of flexibility i mean we um we have a separate app in our umbrella for all of our data which includes the schemas and the repo and everything and that's what uses ecto so it would be nice if just everything to do with ecto lived in there but i guess you can't get away from that or you couldn't in our architecture anyway with the controllers passing all these queries to the repo like the controller has to know about the repository that it's getting the data from. Right. I, I made a decision really early on in this, is which is like, you know what? I, I'm fine with passing around ecto structs, right? Like they are the core like construct of our application and they map directly to the database and we rely heavily on the database. I was fine with all these service functions, just like taking in something, retrieving something from the DB and returning it back. I was always okay with that. But I'm sure there's some purists who think that like, you know, you shouldn't leak the implementation details and therefore Ecto things should stay at the boundary of your services and then you, I don't know, transform them into more generic structs elsewhere. Something like that. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> that doesn't pass the smell test for me. Like, no, every, yeah, yeah. every time I've tried to do that in an application, I end up running into some weird edge case where something looks totally off and it's like, you know, it's not worth it. What, one thing that we didn't mention before that is super cool about Ecto as well is the fact that you can have two schemas that map to the same table. So you, let's say that you end up having, um, let's say you have like a partial user and a full user for want of a better example. Oh, I've got, okay. So like a user who has been referred by a friend, so they exist in your system, but they have not signed up themselves and like finished Boom. their registration. Yeah, that's that's great. That's a good example. So then what you can do is actually type them at the schema level, right? So instead of having like that just be a user you can actually say that like that's typed as like this uh, um, referred user or or like a a, a, i don't know an anonymous user or something let's say right and because you're controlling what you query at the the query point and you're just passing that into your um into your repo that means that like you have this power to to have all these things that map to the same tables and it's, it's just really simple you're just passing different queries around right like it's like that to me is like that was really liberating when i when i realized that actually i don't know how many times i've actually used it but Mm -hmm. it's it's a really nice idea that you can actually do it yeah that's not something that i've used that much i have used a corollary to that and this is something that we've talked about on the show which is having a schema an ecto schema not mapped to a particular database table at all but having it be some sort of composite from a couple database tables. So maybe I have like user and legacy user that have disparate uh, columns or different 
I don't know, a different shape of the data, but I don't want my application to have to know about that disparity everywhere. So at the boundary, I fetch, I have a schema for each, I fetch both of them, and then have a function that reconciles it into my like uh, full user schema that has all the data that I want, and the rest of my application only thinks that I have one unified user table somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's I like that pattern, definitely. It's definitely a nice way to kind of clean up your your code and have it not have all these concepts kind of leak everywhere yeah it's very clean and it takes you very close to having a typed language i would say yeah definitely on the schema level it does because then you're like always matching schemas in your functions and things like that Mm -hmm. but it is nice once you have have fully internalized that a ecto schema does not have to map to a date like a full database table it can be part of one it can span several database tables it's really just some arbitrary shape of data that makes sense for your business object. Definitely. And a a really good example of that is embedded schemas. So we make heavy use of embedded schemas here. So an embedded schema is basically like a virtual schema where it gets saved as a map and serialized into JSON um, and then stored as a JSON column in in your database. So um, Postgres has fantastic support for JSON um, columns. Now, and you can actually write indexes on them and all sorts of things, which are which are really interesting. It's well worth like reading up on what you can do there if you're kind of um, stuck in the dark days of understanding what DBs can do. <laughs> but but I, I genuinely feel like it gets you to this like really nice best of both worlds between kind of a relational DB and a document DB. So we use embedded schemas for things where we know the schema is going to change often and it can kind of live alongside the main inside of a row but we still want some guarantees around it so ecto allows you to kind of type those fields as well and it will do all your casting for you ecto will also maintain a primary key on the embedded on the embedded record if you need it to as well and then you can also write queries to query inside of the embedded schema as well if you wanted to say like let's use my post example and let's say the post had an embedded tag schema or something like that um, so we didn't have to do a join table. And then we wanted to fetch all posts where there was a tag of a particular value. Um, we could write an we could write a query into the JSON schema um, using that as well. Wait, who's JSON? So another thing about embedded schemas is all that means is that there is no um, table underneath it. It's sort of like free floating. So we use embedded schemas to validate API input. Whoa, that's kind of wild. I know. Do you do that because of basically because of change sets and all the functions you get there? Yeah, so we define a <laughs> embedded schema that is the shape of data that's allowed to come in. So we get a couple nice things about this. First of all, we can cast all the we can cast all of our input from strings to atoms and not worry about someone um DDoSing us by overflowing our atom table by just like randomly coercing this map into having atom keys. Uh, it also types things in general. You know, if we have some string input, we can parse it to a date time. And we use change sets, which we will segue into in a moment, to say, is the shape of this data valid? Has someone, has the user passed in all the keys that we need? Are the values legit? Are they within, if someone says, update the state to something, is that something a legal state? that the thing's allowed to change to. And we capture, we catch a lot of that at the database level as well. But we can also, if we want to, get very early validation from the system around like, yeah, you gave us bogus stuff. And there's actually an ongoing discussion about whether validation is needed at that boundary or whether it's enough to have the the database catch it. Because you don't want to end up in a situation where you're checking everything twice. But it is nice a lot of times to capture arbitrary input as a struct that you can manipulate and deal with and ensure at a high level that it's okay before you proceed further blowing my mind man i never thought about using an embedded schema like that so uh it's kind of interesting i'm like i i can get why you're doing that there's also other solutions there right as well there's other um kind of map validation things in elixir yeah but they're stupid Nice. Very uh, very eloquent way of putting it, Desmond. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess you've already got Ecto, so why not? 
Yeah, and like I said, we you know we keep having discussions about whether this pattern makes sense. Um, in a lot of ways, it's it is very convenient. Uh, sometimes it's a pain, but it's 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 one of the things that Ecto lets you do because, again, you can define this thing that doesn't map to a database table, and you get the benefit of stuff like change sets. And so let's talk about change sets. What's a change set? Definitely. So a change set takes a schema and then a bunch of changes and will run a function that casts all those changes onto the schema and basically do your validations for you, things like that. You can enforce data integrity at that point. You can even run like DB constraints and things like that if you want to do any extra validation. Um, and then with that change set, what it will do is have a bunch of errors on it if those things aren't valid. Or if it is a valid change set, um, so if all of those validations passed, it will represent the set of changes that are needed to go from your previous schema to the changes that you required. And then it will be able to take those and turn it into an update statement and then perform the update inside of your database. What's really nice about that is you can define different change sets to encapsulate specific changes you're making, as opposed to uh, the active record paradigm of just calling update with arbitrary stuff that you want to change, which anyone could pass, you know, people could pass whatever they want in. And eventually they came up with this whole strong parameters to deal with the inherent unsafety of it. Do you remember when Homakov totally pwned GitHub? Yeah, 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 that's a good point. I forgot about that. By doing that, that was yeah. that was amazing. Yeah, all the Rails people were like, that's not a problem, whatever. And then he <laughs> blows up this marquee Rails site. Anyway, what you can do here with different change sets is it lets you say only these things are allowed to be changed. So what I will do is create a create change set on the user that accepts a whole list of stuff. I can add the first name, the last name, the email, the password, so on and so forth. I can also make a password reset change set that no matter what I pass in for changes that I want to make, it will only make changes to the password field. And and you do that via a whitelist, right? So you're, you're always passing that whitelist to the cast function. Yes. So you're saying these are the fields that are allowed to be changed. And what's also nice is it lets you avoid logic like, oh, make sure you downcase the email, but then every time I'm saving, I have to make sure that I Sometimes I don't want to run that, and so you end up with this before save, do this, unless <laughs> that. Well, this is cool because if I am resetting the password, I don't have to worry about skipping some data change or like some formatting, formatting that I always want to happen before the data hits the database. I'm only concerned with this particular thing that I'm doing, and that makes my code very clean, and it's very easy to reason about which of those uh, mutations is happening when. Definitely. And something that's really nice about um, change set functions as well, because they're just functions, they're also composable, right? So you can always, a change set basically always takes in a schema, a bunch of attributes and will always return a change set. So you can always write, like, say you've got, um, in Desmond's example, you've got a create user and an update user, but they share half of the same logic. You could break that into a separate function that does it and then compose that in both places in both of those change set functions if you needed kind of separate behavior in each. So that, that, that's been really nice as well. And then you also get all of these nice validation functions out of the box. So it gives you a lot of the things that you need. I mean, you, you're definitely going to need to write custom validations if you um, have anything that's not like this thing's required, This I need this length or must be at least this or whatever it is. Um, or must be in this list of valid uh, values, you know, things like that. If it's if it's not there, you're you're probably going to need to write a custom a custom validator function, which is super easy. Yeah, they're just like check if the value's in the change set, and if it's not, oh, or grab it out of the change set, do your validation. If it doesn't pass that validation, add an error to the change set. Otherwise, just return the change set. That's it. Mm -hmm. it's also nice when you have a bunch of these different change sets you can easily glance at your schema oh these change sets i think we we can all agree those should live on the schema right yeah yeah i i mean i i I like them there i think it's really nice and then we end up i mean we always put our whitelist of attributes that are valid on on the schema as well but yeah i guess uh something something that i found interesting is like the separation of 
So uh, first of all, we didn't touch on like DB constraints in uh, Ecto. So I, I think like something that's different about Ecto than Rails is that they often rely on DB constraints rather than rely on an application logic to figure out if it's um, like a unique record, things like that. Well, let me clarify that. So Ecto plays nicely with database constraints and encourages their use. Yeah, definitely. So um for a unique constraint, for example, say that uh, a post can only have a slug of, um, you can only ever have a post with the same, uh, with with a unique slug in the DB. You can add that unique constraint at the DB level and the DB will validate that unique constraint. The, the corollary to that in like the Rails world that we keep picking on is that you'd find any records that have that, that slug and if if nothing comes back or if there's not anything that exists, then you would insert it. But that obviously leads to a race condition there where at the point in which you've found it, someone else might insert it. And then you might try and do your insert and then things might blow up. You can also handle database constraints in Rails, but it's like you end up rescuing a database error because mm. the the... I guess the error that the database comes back with is not easily digestible by the application code. So they end up just tossing some thing. So you end up having a, a rescue block, which is a little weird for something that is uh, not normal exactly, but not an exception. Right. And in this case, all of that is kind of transparently handled for you, which is really good. I, I, I guess coming back to the validators, so they're really easy to write. I think like chain sets as a whole is a really nice concept of saying like schema goes in, bunch of changes, change set comes out. You can always look at that change set and see if it has errors um, or if it's okay, then you can just carry on. And the change set is what you pass to the repo when you're inserting or updating. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's always the same thing. If you're inserting, it's always a change set. Although uh, you can do some interesting things like you can uh, create your own change set if you need to insert something quickly and not go through all this rigmarole of like create uh, going through your standard validators. So it's not like you always have to do that if you need an escape hatch. So that's a good point. And this is something that I, I encourage everyone on my team to do. If you're a developer and as part of your application code, you have a struct and you are manually updating, say, the state from enable to disabled. You're not relying on user input. This is just something that you know, or you're manually creating an object. You don't need to go through your chain set function where you cast things. You can simply call ecto.changeset.change and pass in the things you want to change and then pass it to the update bang function or the insert bang function. Because since you're the developer, you know that it's going to work. And we can trust you, we hope, to give it the correct values. And so change sets are really for validating validating user input, things you don't trust, things that are unknown. If you're tweaking a knob, like, trust yourself and pass it to the bank function. And, I mean, that's good if um, if you want to bypass some of your business logic as well, I guess. But I, guess, I, I would say, like, use that wisely. <laughs> but I understand where you're coming from. So yeah, I guess something else that I found interesting is that um, if you ever just need to return a bunch of API er or like a bunch of errors in your API or something like that, like we we actually use um, change sets as a way to represent that set of errors just because it's very easy for us to do so. And then we, it, we even go so far as having a serializer in our API that will take a change set and render it into a bunch of errors that are returned through JSON serialization as well. So that we we literally ship that change set around like everywhere. So if you're passing uh, a change set into update and that update isn't valid, um, you're going to get an error tuple back with a change set um, as a second arg. Yeah. So then you can just pass that around, and then we end up like serializing it. I think it plays nicely with with localization too, right? Yeah, I've never actually done that to be honest. Uh, I've never dug into it. It's not ever come up as a requirement for me, but um, I, I know that localization in Elixir is pretty nice. But yeah, got a bit more to look at there. Cool. Uh, what I was going to say around change sets as well is like, because we use them as these kind of generic error containers and because it's just a struct, if you need to put any custom errors on it, it's really easy to do that as well. So sometimes we, we might need in a service to say like, oh, you didn't pass the right params and then we want to list those params that are invalid. 
we'll just put that on the change set as a bunch of errors where it says like all of these params are invalid um, and it'll just ship that back down to be serialized. So we kind of use this change set as this like generic error container as well. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Because then at least you have consistent handling of errors, like whether you're inserting something and that didn't work or you just happen to know something went wrong. Exactly. And that that's what's really nice because it's a struct. We can then go through our serializer and know that a change set will always be consistently serialized, which is, I think, nice. Cool. Um, so we added just like a really simple little function called um, schema with error that we use in our services all over the place that says you just give it a schema, give it the field that you want to put the error on, and you give it the error message that you want to add. And it will just create an ecto change set and add that error and then just return it. We do that often um, in services where you've passed kind of invalid params or something like that. We'll just return this schema with error. Cool. I can uh, add that to the show notes as well. Sounds fun. Yeah. Um, I, there's so much more to touch on Ecto, but I think we should probably wrap up uh, given that we could probably talk about this for another couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of really good talks as well that I think we can link to that I've seen over the last couple of years uh, if you're an ecto newbie or you want to just try things out um, or you're not really sure about where the limits of ecto are there's definitely some good content out there in the wild that you can use to help you on that journey but i would say the docs are great as with most things in the elixir community uh, the ecto docs are definitely a go-to resource for you yeah and if you're still new enough to ecto that the whole thing doesn't make sense, like passing the queries to repos or what's its query syntax or like how does schemas play with this other thing. It's let me say that it's worth your investment to keep hacking at this because once like the different pieces finally come together, you're going to think it's really nice. Definitely. Yeah. And it, it really, really makes a difference as well. So, yeah. It's like just a nice clean pattern for dealing with your database, I'd say. So uh, yeah, I think uh, well worth a look if you're in the market for a library and you want to kind of do a lot of this stuff, which most of the time, most of us are kind of doing things around databases. I'm going to make the assumption. But But again, the fun thing is that you don't need to have a database to have the schemas and the change sets and the validations. Definitely. Like look at your example of using embedded schemas for validating external API input as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Or external input, I should say. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 That's cool. Uh, well, anything else? Should we wrap things up? I think we should. I think people have listened to us waffle on for quite long enough at this point, don't you? Well, maybe they like waffles. And maybe they do. But in case they don't, we will sign off for this week. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining us on another fun episode of Elixir Talk. I'm Desmond. And I'm Chris, and if you have any feedback about this show or anything else that we've done, uh, you can get in touch with us on our Twitter at twitter.com forward slash elixir talk. You can leave us a question on GitHub at github.com slash elixir talk slash elixir talk as, as an issue. Or you can even leave us a review on wherever you get your podcasts these days. Cool. Well, until next time, everyone, keep elixir. Keep elixiring. <laughs>